When our daughter Marie was born, she had almost white blonde hair. I mean white blonde hair. And I thought, thank God she's going to be like my wife. Uh, and I meant that in every way, not just physically in how she looked, but in their temperament and in her personality. I wanted Marie to be like my wife. I believe my wife is the better of the two of us, and I wanted our daughter to take after her. But <laughs> time has shown that our daughter resembles her father in her especially temperament and personality, uh, and probably as well in her physical features. And so I, uh, I have to admit that was a little bit of a disappointment uh, for me through the ages, because if there's one thing a parent doesn't want is a kid who has all their strengths and all their weaknesses. <laughs> that is not that good a deal. Uh, and I don't know if that's the Lord kind of chuckling, saying, yeah, your turn has come, and uh, now you can see what it's like. Uh, so... Anyway, um, do you have a child or a grandchild that, you know, resembles somebody in your family? Maybe has their mannerisms, uh, their appearance. Uh, any of you like that? You have, uh, you have a kid or a grandkid like that? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting thing, you know, to look at them and say, you know, in whose image are they, you know? Uh, and sometimes you have to go back a few generations and you'll see that uh, this particular kid looks like somebody in the family. Uh, I tell people, for example, my brother, he looks just like my uncle. Uh, they are so much alike that for a while when they stood next to each other, people thought they were brothers. Some of them even thought twins. Uh, they look a lot alike. I don't resemble uh, um, that side of my family particularly. Uh, so it's interesting to see that my brother does. But we're talking a little bit about being in the image of God today, and I want to just briefly review where we've been and then press on a little bit. You remember we talked about creation week, and uh, in Hebrew, uh, tohu va vohu is the word for formless and empty, right? Formless and empty. The world starts out formless and empty, and God forms it in the first three days, and then he fills it in the next three days. And so those words are sort of like the agenda, the concern of God, uh, and how he orders creation week. And we learn from this that God wants to give us order. He wants to give us a purpose. He wants to make our lives homey and inviting, so winsome that people love to be around us, right? And uh, to do that now, of course, he would have to, you know, fill our emptiness uh, and uh, with his love and, and turn us into people that maybe we're not, that we probably are not. And, and God is willing to do that. And that way people who are around us can feel safe and feel like we care about them. Uh, we're willing to go to bat for them for, for, and help meet their needs. Um, and from there we took a look at a particular text, which actually used creation language. The word vara, which means to create, the word that's only used to describe God's creative ability in the Bible, is used in this passage to talk about God recreating our hearts. When we've made a mess out of our lives, 
and we need to be fixed, God is capable of doing it. Now, the reason why the creation word shows up is it takes just as much creative power to fix us as it did to make us. Right? So God's love originally set our life in motion, and his love alone can fix us when we're damaged, when we've ruined some part of our lives. So then we took a look at the fact that in the creation story, there are echoes that show up later on in the Bible. There are other places in Scripture that use the same words that we find in creation to describe something else significant. And, uh, for example, we, we talked about, you know, uh, let there be lights uh, in the firmament of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons. And the word that depicts lights that God put in the sky is the same word that's also used to describe the seven-branch candlestick, the menorah that God had put into his sanctuary, right? And the term for signs and seasons is used to describe the various religious holidays in the Israelite calendar. So the point of all of that is that when Hebrew people saw this term and looked at the sun and the moon, they connected it to God and to religion, to, to religious um, practices that, that they engaged in all the time. Their whole year was built around religious holidays. And so they knew that when they looked up at the sun, the moon, and the stars, that God wanted to have a relationship with them. He wanted to work in their hearts. That's not all. We noted that also when it talks about, you know, uh, that God built a firmament in the sky to separate the day from the night, that word uh, for... Uh, Separating is the same word that's used in the sanctuary language to describe the veil that separates various parts of uh, the sanctuary. And so it's, it's interesting to think about how God, when he built the world using you know, the same language he later uses for the sanctuary, God considered this earth sacred space. Sacred space that he wanted populated with sacred people. So all of these insights came from the fourth day of creation, but then we backtracked a little and we looked at the first days of creation. Day one, where light was created. Day two, where the firmament showed up. Day three, where land and vegetation were made. And we said that these things represent God's character, his government, and his purposes. And then we showed a little about why that is. In God's character, we're talking about light. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all, right? God's very essence is light. There is no dark side to God. God is infinite goodness and never anything other than infinitely good. Jesus even claimed, I am the light of the world. Jesus totally on board endorsing this message that God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Infinitely good. He represented God to us and to the universe. So then when we looked at the firmament, we, uh, we could see that you know, God created the surface, and uh, above the surface there was water, and below the surface here on earth there was water, right? And this surface that's created 
the language that's used for the firmament in Scripture is the same word that is also used to describe not only the pavement that's under God's throne, but also God's throne itself. And so the point is that these things represent a way of leading people. A throne represents a kingdom. And so God's governance is mentioned here uh, when we look at that firmament. So when uh, the Israelites would look up at the sky, and by the way, it has the same color, right? Uh, as God's throne, which is blue sapphire. The sky's blue, and so they would look up at that color, and they would know for a fact that this is talking about God and the way he rules the world. In the book of Ezekiel, this surface is shown. It's that color. It's this blue sapphire. And not only that, but God then, when he got, around, got to the point where he made the Ten Commandments, he took part of the stone that was actually around his throne, and he wrote with his own hand the Ten Commandments on those two tablets. And he gave those to Moses. So in every way, this blue firmament reminds the Israelite people of God's governing character. Not just that he is the gov governor of the world, but that he governs the world in a certain way, right? And that way is revealed in the Ten Commandments. So, that's what we saw regarding that. When we moved on to land and vegetation, we saw just how lush the world was made. It was filled with vegetation. And this vegetation made it possible for all living creatures to find a home and to make one comfortable for them, as well as to find food. This lush vegetation reminds us of the abundance of God. Uh, Adam and Eve were told of every tree, of every seed-bearing tree you can eat except the one. That generosity of God, that abundance of God, let them know that God's purpose was very specific. To give life and to give lots of it. The best quality of it, the best quantity of it. To give us life and give it abundantly. We were reminded then that creation week, when it talks about God's character, government, and purposes, also speaks to us at the end of time. Our own Ellen White wrote that we can honor God only as we have a right conception of God's character, his government, and his purposes, and especially that we act in accordance with them that we act in accordance with the knowledge that these things bring to us. So, we then reminded ourselves that we have the same call on our lives that, that we saw in the life of God. God asked us to let our light shine in the world we live in, to let it shine by doing good deeds for other people, unselfish service to the people around us, showing what God is truly like. God told us that he would put his laws in our hearts. He would write them in our hearts so that we would be self-governed. Now, we need to make sure we don't resist, but still. In 2 Corinthians, we learn that the reason why God has given us such an abundance is so what? We can share with other people and not just keep it for ourselves. God's going to give us plenty so we can get this done. So, 
These are the things we've been through so far. The first three days of creation remind us of God's character, government, and purposes. Well, God created Adam from the dust of the ground, and we read that in Scripture in Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, the Hebrew word uh, nishma for breath, it is never used to describe the breath of any other living creature except human beings. Why is that? I mean, other living creatures breathe, right? I mean, that's pretty common knowledge. But the reason is that this breath that God gives only to human beings brings more to us than just physical life. Much more to us than just physical life. And here's some examples of how that term is used, that Hebrew term is used uh, in other places. Job 32 verse 8 says, But there is a spirit within people, the breath of the Almighty within them, that makes them intelligent, that gives them understanding. Well, clearly that's more than just a respiratory issue, right? In Proverbs uh, chapter 20 Verse 27, we read, the human spirit, that is breath, and here's that word again, nishma, the human breath is the lamp of the Lord searching every innermost part. So what we're seeing here is that with this divine breath, Adam and then Eve became a spiritual and a moral being. That's different than all the other creatures that simply breathe. God has given human beings a special gift of spirituality and morality. And we get to exercise those gifts on a regular basis. Um, so everything's rolling al along in this creation story until, of course, we get to this verse. Up until this time, everything is good, good, good. Everything God saw was good. And then God sees something that's not good. It's not good at all. And what was not good? What was not good? Loneliness, man being alone. That was not a good thing. And so God made a helper for Adam. What does that mean, that God made a helper for Adam? Well, first of all, it says it was a helper suitable for him, and that means corresponding to him in every way, as human as Adam was human. But then, there, of course, there's another word that's used, and I'm not going to concentrate on that today, which also means that this person was not just uh, like him in every way, but was the opposite of him, okay? Which is uh, very interesting, trying to combine those two ideas of being totally like and Totally unlike. Uh, very interesting. So God made a person. Now, this person who we call a helper, as down through the ages, sometimes gotten a bit of a black eye. Uh, the helper is a subordinate, uh, you know, somebody less than uh, Adam, uh, kind of a sidekick to Adam. And I'm not sure where that came from, particularly, because in Psalm 70, verse 5, we read, But I am poor and needy, Hasten to me, O God, you are my helper and my deliverer, O Lord, do not delay. Now, anybody want to take a guess? 
Do you think the Hebrew word that's used to describe God as a helper is the same word that's used to describe Eve as a helper? What do you think? Yeah, I, it is that way. So if you were to go on and, and uh, you know, do whatever with a Bible study program, touch that word and the Hebrew root word to show up, it'd be the very same thing. God is a helper. And we see that in a, in a variety of places. Psalm 146 verse 5 says, Happy are those whose helper is the God of Jacob. God made a person, Eve, who exercises divine capabilities. And that should not really surprise us because earlier in creation week, we saw, for example, that God had given to the various creatures that he had already made, the uh, land creatures, the flying creatures, the water creatures. They were all given the ability to procreate, right? All of them. Within their sphere, they could do exactly what God had done, only not from nothing, but they could do exactly what God had done. They could create another being like them, exercising, as it were, divine capacity. So it shouldn't surprise us, then, that Eve has the same capability to be a helper. This is what God does. He invests in all of us as much of himself as he possibly can because he's unselfish. Have you ever wondered why it is in the scriptures? Human beings and even angels have thrones. Did you know that uh, in the, one of the parables, you know, one of the gifts for using the, the, your minas uh, that's been given to you correctly is you're going to rule over cities. Did you know that even the devil talks about a throne? Even God speaks of the devil as having a throne. God is very unselfish in gifting people. As much as he can give created intelligences, he gives them. And so Eve has this godlike capability. She is to be Adam's helper. Just like God is Adam's helper, so is Eve. And so we read about uh, God as a helper multiple times, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well. See these verses in the Gospel of John? But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. So some of the responsibilities, uh, some of the privileges of a helper are to teach and remind. In John 15, 26, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. Now, at various times in this world's history, women were not allowed to testify. Why is that? I mean, it's very clear that helper people uh, were given that privilege and that responsibility. In John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. What does the word another here suggest? Someone else. Who was that someone else? It would be Jesus. I will send you another helper. The, the, the other helper is the Holy Spirit, but it suggests that Jesus too considers himself as a helper. So the term helper is not a mere sidekick. It's someone who possesses God-like capacity to bless others. And this is what God gave Eve. 
Now, you'll remember, it says no suitable helper was found for him for a while, and that's because as he's going through and the animals are paraded one after the other, he sees, hey, they're paired up, male and female. And as, you know, he keeps going through this long line, naming this one and naming that one, pretty soon it begins to dawn on him, where's mine? Where's my counterpart, my partner? And so God became the first surgeon and the first anesthesiologist, right? Uh, anesthesiologist, maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, let's go there. And so Genesis chapter 2 talks about it. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then God took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And you need to hear it like this, at last. I mean, he's gone through this whole parade of animals, at last, you know. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. So sometimes people will say, well, you know, the reason why Eve is so much less than Adam is because she was made out of one, one of his ribs, and that somehow makes her inferior to him. Um, first off, do you remember what Adam was made from? Does that make him inferior to dust or any other creature? Because he too was made out of something, something that God had already created, right? He was made out of dirt, and she was made out of bone, something God had already created. But what does this talk about Adam's rib? Well, first of all, the word for it in Hebrew, right? And you can see what it is, thalah, it means it occurs about 40 times, and it consistently is translated everywhere else in the Bible as side, side. And oddly enough, this one place in Genesis chapter 2 is the only place in the, in the whole Bible where the word somehow got translated rib. I'm not sure why exactly. I could take some guess, but uh, what's interesting is the first translation of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Septuagint, where we translated Hebrew into Greek, they used a word called plera, plera, which means rib cage, a person's whole side. In fact, it's the very word that's used to describe where the soldier stuck his spear into Jesus's what? Single rib? No, into his side. So why was Eve made from Eve's side? Well, when I uh, give a wedding homily, these are the words I usually use. The woman was not made out of Adam's head, so she could rule him, nor out of his feet, so he could trample her, but from his side to be equal to him, from under his arms, so he could protect her, and near his heart, so he could love her always. What do you think? Seem right? Yeah. But to do this, God had to become the first surgeon and the first ana anesthesiologist. I'll get that word out somehow. It's just not coming to me today. My mouth's dry and I'm stressed. So 
Anyway, so what happens then is the Lord, you know, when he decides it's about time to put this guy to sleep, he, he causes this very deep sleep. Uh, Tirdama is an interesting Hebrew word. It means more than just causing someone to sleep. There's more to it than that. You remember this story found in Genesis 15 uh, involving Abram? It says, the Lord told Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. So Abraham says, okay, God, uh, how can I be sure I'm going to actually possess it? Give me something, you know, that's like concrete. And so God asked Abraham, he said, uh, bring this and this and that for a sacrifice and we'll make a covenant together. And a covenant, of course, is a sacred promise that God is going to make to Abram. And so, of course, we read, as the sun was going down, a tear de ma, a deep sleep, fell upon Abram, right? And he begins to also go into something really kind of scary. And the reason why it's scary is it's like a nightmare. Because what's revealed to him is that for the next 400 years, his descendants are going to be in Egypt and they're going to get oppressed. So it is a bit of a nightmare for him. And God tells him, don't worry. I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to judge the nation that's been oppressing them. I'm going to bring the people out, your people out. And by the way, you're going to die in peace. Don't think your life is going to you know, be all messy like theirs. You're going to die in peace. You're going to live a nice long life. Uh, but I do have to wait to bring your people out because... The iniquity of the Amorites, the land where I'm going to bring your people to, it's not complete. I'm still waiting on them to make good decisions, right? So here is an interesting case. In this deep sleep, Abram has this unbelievable vision of what's going to happen to his descendants. And so uh, then the sun, you know, goes down, darkness falls, Abram sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses, the sacrifices that he's cut up. And the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, I've given this land to your descendants. Hardcore, legal procedure, as it were, saying, here's the promise. I'm ratifying it for you right now in front of your very eyes. But in his deep sleep, he gets this profound vision about his descendants. And then God walks between the sacrifices represented by the uh, smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. Now, what's interesting about this procedure is it was usually the lesser, the weaker party that walked between the two halves of the sacrifices. And basically, it was you saying, if you were the weaker party, saying, uh, this is what's going to happen to me if I don't keep my word. I'm going to be cut in pieces and burned. Why in the world would God do that? Why would God put himself at risk, as it were, while he's making this promise to Abram? Why would he voluntarily do that? Well, all of this brings us back to the deep sleep that Adam is enjoying, right? Lord caused Adam to fall in this tear to ma, deep sleep. And I'm wondering if while he was in this deep sleep, God also gave him a vision. A vision about family, what God wanted, what God's purposes were for family. 
for Adam's family? Did he make a sacred promise to Adam like he made to Abram? Was God himself walking between the two, Adam and Eve, as it were, sealing the covenant between them? Because make no mistake, the Bible speaks of marriage as a covenant, as a sacred promise, a holy promise made between two parties. For example, in Proverbs chapter 2, we read, Wisdom will save you from the immoral woman, from the seductive words of the promiscuous woman. She has abandoned her husband and ignores the covenant she made before God. When was that covenant made? When she married. But also, when was it originally made? And that would be back when Adam and Eve were married by God himself. It was a covenant. Now, what's interesting in all of this, you know, think of uh, Adam, you know, he, he has a wound in his side, you know, uh, and part of him is taken out to, to make Eve. And then, of course, God has to, you know, repair that wound. Eve was created through a wound in the side of Adam. Can we not also say that the New Testament church was created by the wound in the side of Christ? You say, well, that, that's kind of a weird jump and a weird, very deep kind of thought. But there was this dude named Paul, and he went there in various ways at times. In Ephesians chapter 5, he wrote, And we are members of his body. Uh, as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Oh, he's talking about Adam and Eve being married. This is a great mystery but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Deep spiritual stuff going on. Well, back to the idea that marriage is a covenant. Uh, we saw earlier that the woman could be unfaithful to her marriage vow, but it's true also of the man. In Malachi chapter 2, we read, Because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, your wife by what? covenant has not the lord made the two of you one and why has he made you one because he's seeking godly offspring so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth in the last verse you know that we saw calling you know marriage a covenant that was the woman doing the wrong thing here we find out that sin is an equal opportunity employer right? Both men and women can sin. But through our marriage, God wants something. He's seeking something according to this passage. What is God seeking? Godly children. Isn't that what it says? He's seeking godly children. The children of our families, the grandchildren of our families, are not ours. They belong to God. They belong to him. God wants them to be made in his image, not just in ours, in his image. The oneness that's spoken of in this passage is the same word, in fact, that's used to describe God in that very famous saying, what we call the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And then we read, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today 
Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tell them, excuse me, tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The oneness of God and the oneness of human beings is a reminder of what God wants. Godly children. Godly children. And the way in which we get godly children, according to this passage, is to do a particular thing. It says, now the English said repeat again and again. This word, shanan, is a very interesting Hebrew word. It means to sharpen a, a sharp blade, or a blade, maybe a dull blade, uh, on a whetstone. Ever done that? Sharpen something on a whetstone, maybe chisels, a knife. Our worship of God, then, should actually give our children a cutting edge. Oh, yeah? A cutting edge. Do you like having your kids have a cutting edge in life? I don't mean something to hurt other people. I mean a step up, a cutting edge. A whetstone has no sharp edges. Have you noticed that? They don't usually make the good ones uh, with you know, sharp corners to them. Why is that? They don't want to nick the blade. Um, in human life, it is our contact with God and our contact with other people that knocks off the sharp edges of our personality and character. Ellen White actually talks about it in one place. She says, we're rocks in a tumbler. And when we go round and round with other people, we become smoother, less rough. We are whetstones for our children and our grandchildren to give them a cutting edge, to help them to become like God, to help them to become made in God's image. Is that what you and I are doing regularly and well? Helping our children to be fashioned in God's image. Is that what we're doing? Marriage is not just about making us happy. It is about that, but it's more than that. It's also about making us holy. In the Genesis account, it's fascinating that the word that's used, and if I remember my Hebrew, it's bana, to build. In the Genesis account, God did not shape Eve. He did not make her. The Hebrew word bana means to build he built her. He built her. Do you know when the next time that Hebrew word is used in the Bible? Let them build me a sanctuary. Well, there's an interesting thought. God wanted Eve to be just as holy as that holy building that would come along later, right? Sacred space, in every way, a sacred person. The word side that's used to describe, you know, where uh, Adam, you know, the, the part of Adam that was removed to, to build Eve. That word side 
it's also used uh, as sanctuary language many, many, many times. I, just, I could produce dozens. Just as God wanted the sanctuary to be sacred, so God wants a husband and wife to be sacred. He wants our marriages to be sacred so that we can give to God godly children, children who have a cutting edge because of our worship of God. Because they too love God with all their heart, their mind, and their soul, their strength. What is happening in your marriage, in my marriage? Are you and I, are we one with our spouse as God wants us to be one? One as God is one? Have we invited God to work in our hearts so that we can give to our kids and our grandkids this cutting edge? Are we giving God children who are made in his image, not ours? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for giving us this creation story and giving us the privilege of being like you. And Father, help us to use our privileges well and be able to transfer them to our children. Help them to pick these things up and become the people you want them to be. Kind, unselfish, generous people. That's what we want for our kids. We know that's what you want for our kids. Help us, Lord, to reflect you well 